Hey folks, no updates this week from the Angle Homeschool Academy. The kids are outside playing in the rain, and I am grateful for that. This will be our last COVID collab, at least for a while. It's been nine weeks, and we're certainly not out of the woods, but it does seem like the right time to transition back to our regular one episode per week schedule. We'll resume that schedule next week with episodes dropping every Tuesday, and Bryce and I will continue our monthly Incentives and Instincts series, diving deeper into some of the topics surfaced in these COVID conversations, for sure. One quick shout out before we get into today's episode. You know, I couldn't do this podcast without Soundmaster Jeff Meese. This is episode nine in the series. We record on Friday afternoons, so that means nine straight weekends of production work for Jeff, on top of his normal responsibilities at the College of Business. Jeff is a passionate partner in this enterprise, and I cannot thank him enough. Okay, let's get into it. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. All right, so we are back, the COVID collab. This is number nine. It's a rainy Friday afternoon here in beautiful Missoula. We're trying to get our spirits up. There's some stuff to be happy about, right? Uh, you know, you, you look at the national news and, and maybe you get a little bit down. It did seem like at one point this week, the CDC released some guidelines for us to go by and then somehow they got scuttled or covered up or it's hard to know what. But good news out of the reopening Missoula working group. It sounds like you all uh, are articulating some clear recommendations and and, and proactively making some plans for for how we turn the dimmer switch back on. Grant, you want to give us an update on what's going on with the the working group? Yeah, this uh, working group has done a tremendous amount of work over the last couple of weeks and really tried, um, although we got off on a little bit of um, one step behind the reopening of the actual community in terms of businesses, they've done a great job of catching up and getting ahead and really thinking in a forward way around what kinds of questions um, businesses and or institutions might um, come forward with for our health department as future phases um, open up, as well as some recommendations around how we as a community can be responsible stewards of our general community health in the present moment. And those recommendations are being wrapped up uh, sort of in written form, and they're going to be brought back to the mayor and the commissioners on Monday for review. And um, it's just uh, something to celebrate. A lot of people coming together with a lot of different perspectives to hopefully expedite um, conversations going forward and make it easier to get information out to members of the community. And I think Susan participated a lot in that community and maybe could talk a little bit about some of the details. Sure. Uh, It was a multi-sector collaboration. I happened to chair the task force that talked about assemblies. So smaller gatherings, uh, worship services, that's a whole um, interesting facet of recovering like Mm -hmm. churches and other faith congregations that do things like, you know, serve communion. How do you do that? Practice social distancing. We also talked about electoral work. If we are out canvassing or signature gathering or campaigning door to door, what sort of rules need to be maintained? And then uh, organizations that host events at small events, receptions and things like that. And all, and groups like Rotary and Kiwanis service organizations, and then organizations that host volunteers. How do you ensure that you're keeping your volunteers and safe and your staff safe? So we met, as Grant said, there was a lot of intense work in a short period of time. And we had representatives from each of those uh, stakeholder groups and came up with recommendations things that we thought should be required, like enforceable things by the health department, and then just a general sort of concerns that were fell somewhere between recommendations and requirements. Yeah. And Susan, I think you mentioned this last week about, you know, how, how do you enforce these things? How do you inspect and measure and, and determine if, if the procedures are being followed? What is the obligation to follow these procedures? You know, is that all occurring through the health department? Is that the the mechanism that yes. um, monitors all this? Yes, okay. they are. They would be the enforcer, and that is given to our chief health officer, Ellen Leahy, by state statute. And I would imagine the health department, like under normal times, probably is barely capable of 
monitoring all the restaurants with the frequency needed to really ensure safety in our restaurants. And then you extend that out to retail establishments and, and churches and all sorts of other things. That's a big lift for the health department, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think incumbent upon all of us to model good behavior <laughs> as we take part in, in the uh, turning up of the dimmer switch. I guess I would add to, in my opinion, that's, that was such a important part of trying to create this uh, work group was realizing as hard as it is for some businesses to think through all the details of how to now manage um, health and sanitation that they didn't have to before. It's also a real challenge for the health department to quickly ramp up their understanding of businesses and activities that they've never really had to oversee in this mm -hmm. way before. So the work group was a great venue for that back and forth conversation. And I think um, is really, it will really help sort of expedite decision-making going forward. There's guidance for everything from, you know, summer camps and uh, as I said, churches, nonprofits, uh, campaigns. It, it's really um it represents a lot of work. Yeah, now you're getting some to something with critical importance to the Angle family, and that is the summer camp piece. It, can you give us any? Can you break any news on what's going to happen with summer camps here in Missoula? Are my kids going to be out of the house finally? He says with hope in his heart. <laughs> Just a little um, bit. They will have to follow some pretty strict protocols sure. as to uh, how they. Uh, carry out their activities, including limited numbers of, of kids. Um, it's going to be a, a pretty heavy lift for yeah. a lot of our traditional. Sounds camps. like camp dad might continue indefinitely. Uh, okay. Bryce, your thoughts on what you're seeing with the health department and um, in this reopening task force. So the, uh, obviously the, the challenge uh, is, as you discussed, that the health department probably isn't staff to enforce all of these rules and all of these establishments all of the time. And, and that's okay, right? The, the key thing is that, you know, we can be free to go about our business as long as people want to and choose to behave responsibly. And that's then where you get into this challenge of, okay, well, how do you create a culture of responsibility where people are trying to do the right thing um, and obviously, that's very hard in these this situation because you know this is where we have a communications challenge, mm -hmm. right? Is you know that the task force is kind of hopefully laying out very clear guidelines that are kind of easy for us to uh, uh, observe and internalize and go, okay, I understand why we're doing that, and I will follow it. And we don't need the health department to come in and enforce some rule because we're all do it voluntarily because. Uh, and this actually, this just came out today. It's a working paper. Uh, and now it was done with Swedes. So we have to be a little bit careful because it's obviously <laughs> being done in a different culture. But it was basically trying to figure out, well, how much do people really want to do the right thing? Uh, and particularly with respect to the COVID-19 health crisis, you know. And the reality is, is that most people don't want to harm others, mm -hmm. even if it's costly to them. Even if the benefits of doing what they want to do are large, the way that they they did this experiment, which I won't go into, um, the vast majority of this population that where they were studying in Sweden were like, no, I I, I will still I, I care about doing the right thing, uh, not harming others, even though you know in the way that was done in the experiment, they literally were turning down money. And so, you know, people want to do the right thing. We just have to make sure that they understand what the right thing is. And that's where the communication piece becomes challenging. Yes, yeah, like that's uh, the, the sort of next point for us at MEP right now is working in concert with the health department and the city and the county to how do we engage the broader community in communicating around we now know we need to do to be safe, both in the current phase one environment, but in future openings in phase one and in phase two. And especially if we get to a place where things have not gone well and we have to backtrack in phases or go back to shelter in place. Um, we've been sort of starting on this process of building a strategy that lets us bring some of the leaders from various sectors in the community together to be spokespeople for various key messages and try to find the right people who can deliver a message. For example, it's it's hard on a small business to tell somebody that walks in the door, you have to wear a mask, 
But if a an organization like mine can tell the broader community by wearing a mask, you not only make everybody safer, but you actually help that small business owner who's trying to make their place comfortable for every customer that walks in the door. Um, just trying to match up the messages we need to convey based on the health department's guidance with the right messengers to deliver that message in a way that's well-received by our community. The mask thing is such an interesting mechanism through which to kind of understand social norms and how they develop. I mean, there's some groups and businesses you go in and you just immediately, it's like, if you're not wearing a mask, you're clearly not welcome. And then you go into other zones and it's, you know, there's, there's not norms around the mask. And I think it's, it's gotta be just because it's so visible. It's such a, you know, uh, uh, you can't, you can't mistake it. And it sends such a a strong signal, Um, but other norms, norms about washing hands or how close your contact is, or the amount of time you spend together, those things are less easy to publicly model. Uh, Grant, additional thought from you. No, I think I think the masks are a great example and a visible one. Um, and I think, uh, you know, getting back to Bryce's comment, I think we are a community in Missoula County who generally wants to do the right thing for the greater community. And I think um, a great communications plan can help us do that. And most importantly, I think looking down the road, we are, you know, this is hard every day. Um, if and when we start inviting visitors back to our community without a 14-day quarantine, um, when the time comes for students to come back in the fall, um, if we haven't developed some really good habits around our norms and really understood as a community what we're doing to be safe and to help people who come here know how to behave in the culture in a way we all feel feel good about and feel keeps us safe, I think we're going to be in for some challenges down the road. So I think this um, starting this process now is a really good time. So... You know, in the beginning of this thing, having hard and fast rules, bright lines, clear guidance, you know, we were really kind of hungry, hungry for that. What do we do? And and the stay at home and the stay six feet apart and do these things um, that sort of clear yay or nay on certain behaviors, uh, that was useful. But at the same time, that kind of clear direction um, – isn't so sustainable in, in terms of the restrictions in the long term. You know, Bryce, would you say that's that's consistent with what we know in, in economics and in human behavior as well? Yeah, I mean, it's really what we expect. And I, I feel like we probably talked about this early on that yeah. this wasn't going to be sustainable forever. You know, you know, we can't all just be inside forever. And you know, as we move into a opening phase and this is where you know i think this was part of what we talked about last week with the tension between people who are like you're not social distancing the way that i think you should um and uh and so the challenge is when it's if everybody's staying at home then it's easy you're staying at home you're not interacting with others um that's a simple message that people can understand but as we move into more nuance it becomes more challenging and in some sense, the simple message that we started out with now works against us because people internalize the first message and now we're trying to change the message and it kind of undermines how we, well, why should I trust you? You told me to do it this way and mm-hmm. uh, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, the challenge is, of course, well, how do we have a probabilistic conversation with a, with a population that does not think probabilistically? And that's challenging and but there are there, you know there are ways to do it and yesterday actually both in the Atlantic and the New York Times so in fact the the New York Times piece was by Missoula's own Charlie Warzel um, uh, and the Atlantic piece was by an economist by the name of Emily Oster um, and they both talk about this communications challenge and how that's basically the next phase of what we're doing and um, they give good clear, examples and guidance that we, you know, we're going to have to move to understanding that, okay, if you're not doing this clear first best thing, what's the next best alternative? And, you know, you have to communicate clearly that you could be wrong. And if you are wrong, don't try and hide it, just admit it. Um, I, you know, try and of course be understanding of people's emotions, but give people a variety of options, help them try and understand 
and this is, you know, obviously the tricky thing is, well, how do you get people to understand probability mm-hmm. uh, when, you know, it's it, particularly in a place like Montana right now, the risk of contracting the disease is low, right? but we don't know it's out there. And so we have to keep doing all this stuff as this big dance to try and keep it from exploding before we know it's here. And that's hard. But, you know, that's what we, that's the challenge that we'll hopefully go through. And hopefully we're up to that challenge. And hopefully the guidance that, you know, the experts uh, will give us will help Grant and the community leaders figure out how to make sure that we here in Missoula and across Montana uh, keep doing things right so that we can open up more and more. You know, Susan, let's let's turn to you. It occurs to me that. You, know, you interface a lot with people in the health space, in the community health space here in, in Missoula. And, you know, at the level of healthcare providers, that's almost the tip of the spear of this notion of building the plane as we're trying to land it. You know, we're learning more and more about the disease, how to contract the disease, how to protect yourself against it, how to treat it. And so these people, you know, they're working in tents. Um, situations, but also having to adapt to the way they work so rapidly in response to, you know, what we're learning. Can you talk about that community and, and, and your sense of how they're, how they're getting through right now? It's funny. I was at the office earlier today. We've sort of gradually reopened at United Way and we can have no more than two people there at the same time. And anyway, I was there and we're right across the alley from Partnership Health mm-hmm. Center. And one of my friends who's a nurse there was in the, you know, walking through the alley when I was parking. And I was really struck by how exhausted she looked. Yeah. And it is, it's just a constant onslaught and of, of regular patients and people who are afraid. And she is reluctant to go home at night because she's afraid of spreading disease to her family. And I think that that prolonged trauma and stress is, is really, really wearing on people. Yeah, I I would, I would imagine, I mean, we talked to Dr. Dan Pierce earlier in our series a few weeks back, and, you know, I talked to him pretty regularly and sort of the, the state of readiness at an emergency department, which I'm sure is occurring at, you know, other, other, other providers outside of the emergency department, but that constant state of readiness of vigilance, you know, it it has to sort of be like the stress that any one of us, um, regular citizens has walking into a grocery store, but just, you know, exponentially higher and all the time. And that's, that's really tough conditions to work under. And the great unknown, right. Which is, so scary. I wish I had a cheerier scenario. Everyone's doing great. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, I mean, it kind of, I mean, Bryce, when we started when our first conversation about this, you posed the notion, I mean, at that point, the, you know, maybe there was like one or two tests available in the country, uh, exaggeration, but it, it doesn't feel like we're too far off from that. But at that point, you, you sort of made the comment that, you know, where we're at with testing, we might as well just test randomly. And it almost seems like we're still there. Like I look at, you know, the possibility of reopening a university in the fall and welcoming students back. Like what kind of testing regimes must we have in effect to do that with any degree of confidence that we're inviting students into a, into a safe environment? Um, well, they, you know, there's various models that the different public health people uh, have put out about what level of testing that you need to have. And on some of them, apparently the level that we have in Montana is actually okay. Um, I personally, I, yeah, I would like to see obviously more testing and certainly more, obviously I understand why you have to allocate when you have scarce tests, you have to allocate them to people you think might have it because it might affect how you treat people or whatever it is. Um, but from a trying to have a, as we've talked about, you know, the key to turning up our, our, the dial or the dimmer switch on the economy is fear. And if I can, the way to reduce the amount of fear that people have is to help them convince them that the disease isn't likely to be spreading here. And 
like, yeah, random testing sounds like a really good idea to me in terms of helping give me that confidence. Because if, yeah, if you're going to have students come back, ideally you would test all of them. Right. But short of testing all of them, particularly those that are coming from places that have a higher prevalence of the disease, that suggest- I would want to test a random sample of them on a relatively regular basis for at least a little while, or at least, you know, and I don't know if this is possible, but if you're coming from someplace where the disease prevalence is in and above a certain threshold, we'd probably want to quarantine them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and real quarantine, not like self-imposed, I'll do this honor system kind of stuff. Like have them come two weeks early and stick them in a dorm. Uh, I don't know, but it seems like, and I obviously things also depend on where we are in the fall. Right. I guess that's the other thing that we should be clear on is uh, it's, it's very, because this can change so rapidly, it's very difficult to make plans for something that is what August. So so we're, what are we, four four months away, three Mm -hmm. months away. Uh, That's, but three months ago, we were barely starting to pay attention to this if you were me. Uh, and it was two months ago that I think we even had our first conversation on this, Justin. Yeah, I think uh, so. In fact, it might even be less than two months ago. Uh, so to think about where we're going to be three months from now is it's just so hard to imagine. Uh, and so... But yeah, in all of whatever the scenario, I think that so if you have scarce tests, doing at least some amount of random testing so that you understand if it's somehow hiding from you would be useful. Grant, what's the business community saying about the testing regime right now? Like there's certain business, I mean, are they starting to take matters into their own hands? Is that even a possibility? Like, what, what's the interface with testing? You know, testing hasn't been a topic I've heard a lot from the business community. I think um, I think what testing, as Bryce is describing it for me in terms of how I'm I'm hearing him talk about testing, is sort of to reduce uncertainty about the prevalence of the disease in our community. I'm curious for Bryce, maybe if does random testing help you take action around the cases or does it merely help you from a sort of epidemiological and statistical framework? Because one of the questions I have for you is if you're only doing random tests, it seems like you get a great sense of the prevalence of the disease, but you don't have a high degree of confidence that you know where to go next to tackle whatever percentage of the population you start to identify as having the disease. Am I missing it, something there? Yeah, no. I mean, you still have to be testing people who have symptoms uh, because they're more likely to have it and you want to isolate them and trace their contacts. The, so that's, that's still paramount. Um, for me, random testing, particularly... So everything that we've seen from the various uh, studies that look at antibodies... Uh, suggests that at best we're capturing one out of every 10 people who has actually had the disease. Uh, So that's, we're missing a huge number of people and those people of course can spread it around. And uh, so to the extent that we have some tests available, uh, it would be nice to try and find more of those people to make sure that they don't seed the the explosion, right? Mm. So again, I'm going to go back to the forest fire metaphor, right? If 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 there are embers floating around, I would love to be able to see where the embers are going, uh, so that I can figure out if there's flames that are going to come out. And right now, we're really only picking things up kind of too late, right? Particularly given that potentially up to half of people never develop symptoms or do so only with a long lag. That's, that's the big fear, right? That's my big fear currently, because as far as we know right now in Missoula County, we don't have it. A new angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. 
Hi, this is Joe Anderson. I am the CEO of Reflex Protect, and you're listening to A New Angle. But there's still people circulating in and out, and they could come and go and uh, seed a relatively large thing before we even know about it. And so it's it's trying to make sure we don't end up where we were back in February and March. Um, and if we just rely on testing people with symptoms, we may miss a bunch and we may get a, a community spread in a much bigger way than we would like. Yeah. So I guess, Justin, to answer your question, I, I hear about the call for testing, especially from our really big employers like the hospitals who are kind of on the front lines. Mm -hmm. I guess I would say indirectly, um, if I were to encourage us to invest testing in a place, it would probably be in our schools. I think that um, what I sense from many employers is that the lack of places to send our kids every day is probably one of the biggest barriers to bring our workforce back to work. And I think if we could give parents greater confidence that schools had the means to really get to testing and tracing in meaningful ways that allowed them to conduct business as usual, that would go a long way to giving employers. So there aren't that many really large employers in our community um, environments, which they felt like they could start to bring more of their workforce back into a, a, a normal working environment. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. And you know, the, the, the school thing, you know, makes me sort of feel like the random testing would be a good idea. As Bryce said, you know, you, you can develop, a basic understanding of, of where the disease is and where it's headed. You know, we could assume that we have zero in Missoula right now. I mean, the hospitals tell us that in a lot of ways. That's that's one way to view it. But we, it seems also pretty clear that there's there's got to be an amount of the virus floating around in the community. But without some testing regime, we really don't know. Uh, Susan, you've had your hand up for a while. What's uh, What's on your mind? So I we participate in the in the statewide VOAD calls, the volunteer organizations active in disasters, one of the many COVID-related acronyms. Yeah. And on yesterday's call, the update from DPHHS was that aggressive testing is about to start um, and it will be opened up for everybody across the state with local health departments guiding how to access in each community. But the um the stages that they mentioned were first nursing homes and assisted living facilities, then tribal organizations, then emergency responders, and then people seeking medical care at hospitals. And then I think followed by like people who are incarcerated, you've probably followed that this is a real issue sweeping through the prison system nationally. But schools, um, I didn't hear schools talked about yeah but definitely encouraging when this aggressive testing that they say they're about to start well they'll encourage anyone who has regular contact with the public to be tested and uh, the 14-day self-quarantine will still be in place lots to be hopeful for there i'd like to take those folks at their word that that you know help is on the way and, and on the way fast um we've heard that before though so sort of you know, it, it will have to wait to, to see how that plays out. Um, one thing that we're starting to know more about, though, you know, in the absence of clear norms or clear information, you know, clear rules, uh, there is sort of an emerging wisdom around what's safe and what's not to some degree. I mean, it seems to be a function. Bryce, you posted a piece to our discussion group that was really helpful for thinking about the virus in terms of intensity of dosage and the time through which you're you're exposed to that dosage. Is that, interesting? Is that a useful way of thinking about it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it goes back to that basic math of communicable disease, which is there's a contact with somebody who is infected and can transmit it. And then the question is, is, how much interaction between me and them, or more accurately, me and the viruses that are spewing out of them, does it take for me to become infected? Right. Right. So obviously, 
what we're what we've been doing with stay home is we've been trying to basically say, well, if you're infected, if we all stay home, I can't interact with anybody, and therefore I can't contract the virus. So if I don't interact with anybody, I don't contract the virus, and that's kind of the stay home approach. But as we move back out of our little uh, home environments and back out into the real world, at least at some slightly higher level. I'm going to interact with more people, and the question is: Is well, in what ways, can, in what what types of interactions with somebody who might be infected and not know it, or might be infected and know it, but is still out and about, can we do to try and reduce the odds that they that in that encounter becomes a transmission? Mm-hmm. And you know, that's that's again, there's a function of well, that, how many viruses do they spew out of them, and how many do I actually ingest? And that's where things like duration of time sharing the same airspace because if you know you and i sit in close proximity and have a conversation for an hour and i am spewing out viruses with every breath and every word i speak or every cough that i might have the longer that you and i sit in the same spot together the greater the odds that you're going to get sick and that's basically what a lot of the contract tracing studies have now found is yeah uh, I was on a bus with you for an hour and uh, you know, you were sick and you were on a bus with me for an hour and half the people on that bus got sick or uh, all the people that sat around you at a restaurant got sick or all the people on your side of the office got sick. And we're seeing a lot of that kind of evidence. So indoor, uh, long exposure, people talking, um, that gets a lot of people sick. So the question is, well, how do we kind of adjust our lives uh, so that we maybe avoid some of those riskier situations or don't put ourselves in some of those riskier situations where the opportunity to interact with lots of viruses and it really does seem to be indoor transmission for prolonged periods. It's not to say that you can't get it from a brief conversation outdoors, but we don't see a lot of that. Mm -hmm. So your risk appears to be relatively low. But if I sit on a bus with you for an hour or I sit in a restaurant with you downwind review for an hour or um, I go to a choir practice with you, uh, these are all things where we, we now have clear evidence that a lot of people can get sick from being in that space with you for a long period of time. Yeah, we've mentioned you know, that, that outbreak at the meatpacking plant in South Dakota before and you know, thinking through – you know, hey, why why a meatpacking plant? Why is that particularly dangerous? And it's it's a place where people are working in very close proximity, and it's very loud. So, and they have to communicate frequently. So these people are are right next to each other. It's loud, and they have to kind of yell at each other to to communicate effectively. And um, yeah, that spewing of the virus—that's such a great turn of phrase. But um, yeah, it's gross. It's but totally that's, gross. But that's the point, right? Um, <laughs> But yeah, you can kind of understand. And when when I, when I sort of started thinking that through, it illustrated to me, okay, here are sort of some of the principles I should be thinking about as I make choices about how to, you know, safely or to the degree um, of safety I can tolerate. Uh, how do I re-engage with the world? Uh, Susan, your thought. Just a quick note that um, one of the things that we talked about in our task force as part of the reopening working group was guidance from churches about hymn singing Mm. and not to resume singing until like phase three because of studies that show that singing projects more droplets that can become embedded deeply in the lungs. So it's similar to the point you just made about the meatpacking plants where people are yelling. Uh, Susan, this is my, Susan, this is my moment. I was forced to do choir in high school by my parents, <laughs> and I just sat in the back and mouthed the words. I actually didn't even know the words. I mouthed watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. Right, so right. <laughs> I, you know, I, in this world, I would be a responsible member of the congregation. by re- Yes, you know, just, yes. Just I, I hope you're able to tell your parents that you told them so. Indeed. <laughs> I've been waiting 45 years for this moment, um, and here we are. So anyway— um, so we're starting to get a little bit of an understanding of how we should make choices as individuals. I think that's useful. Uh, it, it surfaces a, a lot of complications. We talked earlier about, you know, 
different sorts of businesses that are coming back online. And it's just, it's sort of, as we emerge from this crisis, all new forms of inequality are starting to kind of take hold in, in, in random ways. And it seems like as a society, we're being forced to grapple with these things in, in real time. And I think at the end of the day, we're going to do some things well, or we're going to make big mistakes in other areas. And we got to be able to adapt and learn from those mistakes and move on. And also, I think something bright, a word Bryce has mentioned several times is grace. Um, got to be able to have grace as we move on from those mistakes. So I don't want to classify PPP necessarily as a mistake. I mean, I, I do think we, we, we all beat the drum for fast action to get money into the economy quickly. But we're starting to see some of the problems associated with trying to get that much money into a system r- rapidly. Um, Grant, what's, what's the latest thinking on, on PPP? What, what, what's the good, bad, and the ugly there? Well, I mean, the good is is really the speed at which the the amount of money was able to be deployed into mm-hmm. our communities. I think, I think if you had asked some anybody in the business world a year ago if it was possible to deploy that much money to small businesses across our country that quickly, people would have really doubted it. But I think um, the speed was tremendous, and frankly, I think um, I think we would see devastation at a different scale if it hadn't moved so quickly. But of course, uh, and Bryce talked about this early on, that that comes at a price and the price will be an an imperfect system and potential for fraud and other things. And I think we're starting to hear some of the stories of that. And, um, And some of it's about people who applied that weren't maybe qualified or shouldn't have. Um, Some of that's just honest misunderstandings or mistakes along the way. Um, What I can tell you being on the front lines of this is that every business that in existence was sort of encouraged in the early days of this rolling out to just apply and get in line because the money's going to go fast and the rules aren't clear. And so if you don't apply, there's a chance you'll never get it, even if it's meant for you. And if you do apply, there's probably going to be a way to back out of this at some point. And so um, one of the challenges we've had in this program of PPP is that the the guidance still isn't clear and definitive in many ways around the entirety of the program. Um, that's been true around the qualifications for the loans until just the last few days. And it's certainly been true um, about forgiveness of the loans. And so a lot of people have been probably holding on to their loans or their applications until that guidance became more clear. Um, there is a safe harbor in place so that people can start to walk away from some of those funds if they now recognize with more guidance it's not a good fit. And there's a lot of effort underway right now, with right here in Missoula even, with some great help from local accounting companies, some of our peers and service providers on our economic recovery task force to really sit down together and and understand exactly where there are problem, systemic problems with the program itself that need to be changed. For example, um, it's probably, it's becoming pretty clear that that eight-week window is probably not enough to recognize what Bryce recognized a while ago, that when you quote unquote reopen legally, it takes a long time to ramp up the communications mm-hmm. and the confidence in the community to come back to businesses at a speed with which it's actually a benefit to a business to be open. So it's probably that that forgiveness window isn't probably big enough for some companies. Um, and also there's there was still a lot of ambiguity for banks, what level of um, risk they were taking on from some of these loans versus what the federal government was taking on. So there's a long list of those things, and we're going through that now. And I suspect over the next 10 days or so, we're going to see a lot of communities like ours communicating with our congressional delegations to really force the the Congress, our Senate, and House to think through the spirit of this program and whether or not all the rules that came out of the Trump administration in the final hours of presenting this program really met the spirit of the program in a way that is um, sufficient or if some things need to be done to make it work a little bit better going forward. Because as I think we're all realizing, this is not a an acute problem. This is going to take a while to get out of, and we're going to need these programs to be amended where possible, improved where possible, and we may need still more programs down the road, and we can learn from what we've done already. Yeah, we, we had to get the ball rolling immediately, but now we have 
I don't want to say the luxury of time, but we have a little bit more time to, to get it more precise um, for the long term. You know, we're, we're kind of approaching the back end of our time. Uh, and I think it was Bryce that threw in, you know, a couple of really interesting thought questions um, that I'd like to kind of close our, our session with today. Uh, we'll just go around the horn here. I'll start with you, Susan. You know, what's one thing that's changed during this time that you would like to see continue after the crisis abates? That's a great question. I have definitely realized that I am fully capable of working from home without getting distracted and that all of my colleagues are performing just amazingly. And I think uh, really relaxing our working from home policies that we actually, we don't really have (laughs) much of a policy, but I've just seen incredible productivity and effectiveness, uh, even in myself during this time. And that's something that I will continue to take a look at on behalf of all of my colleagues. Awesome. Bryce, how about you? I want to talk about uh, some of the parenting stuff and at least the more 80s childhood lifestyle last week. Right. But um, I've I'm food at my house, uh, and so I I have also liked some of the things that I've changed in terms of just meal planning organization hmm. structure uh, that I think I might keep around. We'll see. Obviously, um, can you give us an example? You know, it's well, you know. So obviously, I have three kids, and um, there is basically no dinner that all of my children will eat. Um, and so, uh, I have done a better job of staggering so that the leftovers from the night before will go to the kid who doesn't want this, what the, what I'm going to feed them tonight. <laughs> nice. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and again, part of this is just the, the fact that I don't have all these, you know, youth sports obligations at nights. It makes it a little easier to pull this off which i'm i'm uncertain how much it will continue but you know it's just been kind of there's just been kind of a nice uh i've been able to kind of get into a rhythm of you know meeting people people where they want uh and having fewer nights where i'm literally just dealing with children screaming at me because they hate the dinner yeah and when, uh, you, when you don't have to work as an uber driver in your off hours uh <laughs> it's a little bit easier to do such things that's right yeah, that's right. Awesome, Grant. How about you? What what change would you like to see endure? Uh, I think daily collaboration. I just think um, while it is time consuming and daily doesn't need to be the way that it happens going forward, um, there's a level of communication happening between institutions and individuals in the community right now that is um, that is entirely embedded in the spirit of. What do we need to get done and how can we help each other get it done quickly? And it is it is without ego and it is without any sense of being self-serving. And it's such a inspiring um, work environment to be a part of in this community right now that um, I, I think, if anything, it, it drives one to work so hard that they're Probably exhausted every day, mm. but it's really, I don't think um, I've ever been so proud and inspired to sort of be a part of this community. And I've been both feeling really rewarded in the small contributions I've made to other successes, but incredibly grateful for the huge amount of work that others have contributed to ideas and projects that I have tried to get done. So that's been really inspiring. Awesome. Okay, next question in the rapid fire uh, prediction realm. Susan, what change do you think will continue? I mean, what will be permanent when we, uh, what won't go back to normal, so to speak? I hope the kind of support that we've seen for frontline responders, childcare workers, and teachers. I think that this has been a big eye opening experience for millions of people. Yeah, absolutely. Bryce, how about you? What what change do you think will endure? Uh, so I, I of course posed the question, and I don't have a great answer. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was mostly curious what other people thought because I feel like every day I'm reading some article about how this or that is going to change, and I'm always like, "Will it?" Yeah, those articles are really uh, annoying. There's a lot of them uh, about higher ed right now. Of course, uh, and you know, 
that's on my list for when we restart incentives and instincts. So well, let's go through these. Uh, but anyhow, so I, you know, I mean, obviously the work from home thing does get a lot of play, although there's some drawbacks to that. Um, that I think will become more salient once you try and have people in both worlds. Uh, and there's a need to have people in both worlds. But um, I mean, I'm hopeful that a lot of things change, but I think most people hope, and that's, you know, that's kind of the, the, the snarky comment on all of those articles is that basically it's just projection of what you want to change. Right. Uh, but um, what do I think will actually change? I, I don't know. I'm very bad at predicting the future, although uh, I really want to be able to predict the future in this particular case. Is that Niels Bohr? Prediction is hard, especially of the future. I think so. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Grant, what do you think? Well, I, I think um, I, this is certainly not something I want to see change, but something I'm worried about changing. I am not sure that we will see our downtown retail and restaurant mm. environment ever look the same again. It just, uh, I feel like we're still at the very tip of the spear on what the long-term impacts are to those kinds of businesses. I feel like they've been struggling, especially retail for so long against online shopping. And I, um, it's just hard for me to see how a broad, you know, big picture, not that there won't be individual businesses that continue to succeed and are that stand out, hard to see our how our main street businesses look vibrant and healthy and really successful on the other side of this without people really shifting the way they choose to spend and behave on a retail basis. Yeah, that one is certainly concerning. We'll see how that plays out. Um, I guess I didn't answer the first one myself. Uh, I'll kind of combine my answers because I'm hopeful that, that my answer will be the same for both in the long run. And that is, you know, the University of Montana innovated quickly. A lot of universities did. Um, and when I say innovated, I mean, we, we went from largely in-person instruction to entirely remote instruction. And that forced a change fast. And that change was, you know, maybe sloppy, maybe imperfect, um, maybe didn't result in the best of product in the short run, but it was an innovation and institutions aren't very good at making rapid change. And so I'm hopeful that some of that spirit, that ability to move quickly endures because um, universities, whatever you say about them, I think they're going to have to move faster in the future. So we'll see if that change endures. Anyway, uh, we're kind of coming to the close of our COVID collab. And, you know, we've decided that it's time to kind of put this thing on hiatus. The four of us will reconvene as needed as the situation demands. Bryce and I, if I can twist his arm, I think he hinted at it earlier. We will resume our monthly incentives and instincts conversation. But um, this has been a really special, really hard, uh, uplifting at times as well to get together with the, the, the three of you on a weekly basis and kind of do what we can to help uh, inf inform the community. As we bring this thing to a close, let's do so in the spirit with which we have each time and, and, and end with something that, that makes us hopeful, something that gets us excited. Susan, you want to start us off with that? I'll talk about my favorite subject, me. Uh, <laughs> I celebrated a birthday this week and had over 60 people on a Zoom call. And I think that's one thing that will continue in my life is, you know, thinking twice about say, driving to Helena for a 90-minute meeting. Uh, I was very grateful for the technological capabilities that made it possible for me to share my day with uh, people around the country. It was it was awesome. Susan, that's amazing. Congratulations and happy birthday. Um, I don't even know 60 people, so good job. Well done. <laughs> Uh, Susan and I had the pleasure of being on a phone call today with the Montana High Tech Business Alliance, and they reached out to us to talk about ways they could support the Missoula community through their COVID time. Um, I'm pretty excited because I do think that we have in Missoula some of the brightest minds maybe in the whole country to think about what we're doing to support kids, to give kids healthy and productive environments, and to sort of tackle some of the challenges from 
zero to five, all the way up through um, post high school education. And I'm I, I'm just really hopeful that we're going to see some people brought together through this crisis that will identify ways we can do things differently that give us a whole new and maybe improved way to support how our young people grow up in this world, learn and thrive and are prepared to be adults who cope with things like this so much better than we have in the future. So um, I, I just think cool things are happening right now and good is going to come of it. Awesome. Thank you for playing a big role in those good things. Bryce, how about you? Um, I'm very happy that I live in Montana. Mm. Uh, at least thus far, we've managed to avoid uh, both the disease impacts, but I've been looking at a lot of economic data. And while it's still bad, uh, Montana looks really good compared to a lot of other places. And uh, I know lots of other people in other states who keep saying, oh, how can I come to Montana? And, you know, we will likely go through a bad period at some point but hopefully we will be more prepared for it because we didn't have to go through it early. And so, yeah, I'm very grateful that I got to experience this from the, at least thus far from the relatively good uh, seat of being in the isolated place of Montana, which yeah, I guess gave us a little bit of a, uh, a, a less intense version of this particular uh, disaster story. Yeah. We can work up some really compelling marketing around that Montana the least worst place or something like that. Anyway, um, we're getting punchy at the end of this thing. Okay, what am I stoked about? I am stoked about um, what I think will be branded as the summer of simplicity. I've been a little beaten down by administrivia at the office lately. And with the close of the semester, we're sort of moving to a time where at least my job gets a little less complex professionally. And since Susan is not willing to open up summer camps, um, gonna have a lot of time on point. It's all me. It's all my fault. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, so I'm stoked about this summer of simplicity. We can't really do summer camps, at least according to Susan, and uh, I think that's gonna mean a lot of time on point with my children for me uh, during a time where um, we're gonna have to just reengage in a lot of the simple joys of life: camping, spending time outside, riding our bikes, running around doing all the great things that we, we love to do. And um, a lot of the reasons why we, we love to do them in Missoula are super salient right now, as, as Bryce mentioned. Uh, I'm also stoked about being able to continue working with the three of you. It might not um, be on a weekly basis, but um, this this project here, this COVID collab has brought us uh, closer professionally. And, and I look forward to, uh, to, to continuing to... Um, just to see how, how the three of you operate in such an important way in this community. Thank you for doing this. And um, yeah, be well and take good care. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Our awesome interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Jeff Amet, John Wicks, and VTO for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.